First, I'd like to introduce David Campos. David is the author of Furious Dusk, which is right up there, which is the winner of the 2014 Andres Motoya Poetry Prize. His poems have appeared in the American Poetry Review, Boxcar Poetry Review, Huizacha, The Packing House Review, Verdad, and Miramar, among other journals and magazines. He is a Cantomundo Fellow and lives in Fresno, California. David Campos. Thank you guys for coming out. I know it's it's hot. <laughs> I, got, I live in the valley, so I'm coming from Fresno, where it's like a hundred all the time. And I thought maybe maybe I could get away with wearing a long sleeve shirt today, and I was fucking wrong. <laughs> um, but just to keep things short, I'm gonna read four poems, right? And one is a brand new, or at least I like to think of it as brand new. And it was published earlier this year year online by Luna Luna magazine. It's called American House Fire. And to give it a bit of context, I read a bad poem about Ferguson in the Paris Review, and I was just like, I think I could try to do something that um, I think that poem failed to reach. American House Fire. In a house fire, you don't die from the flames. So don't mind the broken windows. I'm trying to let the smoke out. I have been for a long time running from room to room looking for an exit. What I would give for the chill of starlight. To believe in a just God who brings rain to temper the blaze ravaging my house. To feel for once what it's like to win. And victory... Instinct orders our arms to rise toward the heavens. Some say this is what we're left with to remind us of God, to remind us to surrender. But the smoke has stolen too many our fathers. It's after our sons. And every door leads to another dead boy's room. Still you watch my house burn. Smoke lifting its arms over the city. Only if they didn't cook with fire, you say. Only if their house had followed code. How many more doors will have to burn until it's yours? I'm running out of windows. And my arms are losing their strength. The sky darkens with victory. Surrender. It's hard to tell anymore. But what's certain is... In a house fire, we die when we cry our son's names. And it seems like I'm, I'm always revising. So I'm going to read this poem, and I hate the, f the first two stanzas. Uh, I should have taking them out when I had the proofs in front of me. It's called Hollywood Endings. It seems appropriate. The moths thaw out from the lamppost to soften the yellow like the lights before a movie starts. The dark held aback by the glow of the screen lingers like a hungry bat. I don't know how much longer these nights will last. These nights 
The walls have suffered enough from the naming of faults. We don't talk about Hollywood endings. We stopped watching movies together. The moths are too faithful to the light. And when it flickers, I envy how they dance in the dark. My wife shifts in her sleep, and I hear her teeth grind like a carcass dragged slowly over gravel. Museum of Natural History. Has anybody here been to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History? I ran through it in half an hour and got kicked out by security guards. I didn't know they were closing in half an hour. I thought I had enough time, but I guess not. Outside, the wall's concrete cracks spread all over as if they were nerves on its skin. Inside, the library of decay, the stuffed rabbits in fauna stuck behind a fluorescent amber for style holds its breath. I learned that fungi will outlive us all. They predate the structure of bones. We are born without clothes. For warmth, we kill for skins. And it's cold this morning. And finally, I'm going to read Dusk. Now, I say I stole this poem, but it's really an homage to one of my favorite poets. His name is Larry Levis. And he has a new book coming out. Um, in January. Dusk. My father beat a man's face to the color of dusk. Dark purples and reds being swept over Til Zapotla. The man, Claudio Ocampo, had just slammed my grandfather to the ground. A knee pressed against his spine over the cell of a cow that wasn't producing milk. I heard the cracks of his ribs as my father ran out of the house to knock Claudio off my grandfather, his fist unhinging this man's jaw. The splatter of blood spit out onto the cobblestone, mixed with the dirt, a mirror of the sky. When it was over, my father and grandfather came in and we ate our pan dulce with hot chocolate on the second story balcony listening to the crumbs falling into our laps. On the plane back to the States, while his hands healed from the swelling, I asked about the fight. I'm sorry you had to see that, he said. And that's all he ever said of it. I never understood this apology. Sometimes, while I play football at dusk, I stare through the cement and bricks, the exhaust of this city in summer, and realize I'm looking at blood again. A small flicker drying, mixed with dirt and warning. It used to make me think of love, looking at the sun dipping into the mountains in Fresno, that light was furious. Now Fresno darkens as the wire from the street lamps is stolen. My father is dying. His hands have lifted so many cigarettes from pocket to mouth that his breath is disappearing like the light. When I visit, I hear his coughs wake him. They wake me 
And we sit in the cold of the backyard looking up at the stars and I remember my father telling a younger me that when we died, we went to heaven and became the stars we see at night. For years, I believed we would all become stars. Now, we don't talk about endings or stars or the way his fist undid a face. We just watch the sky as if it could bring back breath and love the sparkling sugar at the bottom of a paper bag that once held warm pan dulce. We both light cigarettes and blow smoke as if we were cities and the streets were going dark as a dusk gives way to night as a sun shuffles from one lamp to another trying to stay warm and safe under their glow. But tonight, Father, it is dark here in Riverside where the earth just rattled and the walls cracked like the bones that night you broke dusk out of a man's face. Yet here, when I think of you, I can almost believe that the street, as it rolls into the hills, leads to the stars. Thank you. Thank you, David. I can see why your book was so highly praised in the Harvard Review now. Our next reader is Ruth Nolan. Ruth is a Mojave Desert and Coachella-based author and professor whose writing is grounded in the California desert where she's lived for most of her life. She's a professor of English and creative writing at College of the Desert and the editor of the critically acclaimed anthology No Place for a Puritan, The Literature of California's Deserts. She is writing a memoir about her work as a wildland fighter in the California Desert District and Western U.S. for the BLM and USFS in the 1980s. Her poetry and stories and essays have been published in Rattling Wall, Short Fiction Los Angeles, New California Writing, Women's Studies Quarterly, The Sierra Club Desert Report, The Desert Oracle, and many other publications. Additionally, she blogs about her life in the desert for KCET Artbound Los Angeles, Inlandia Literary Journeys, and Heyday, and leads writing and literature seminars at the Desert Institute at Joshua Tree National Park, as well as other organizations. A champion of literature she is. Ruth Nolan. I was thinking um, a lot of people here were probably not born in the 80s, or maybe you were. But. So this is what I was doing when I was out there. When you were being born, I was out fighting fires, just like my daughter is in her 20s. I'm going to start out with two poems and then read a little bit from my <clears throat> memoir in progress. Um, I've been, like a lot of us, really thinking a lot about the gun violence that's been happening in all the schools, and I teach also, so we, all, we had a threat at our school last year, and it was really kept under the lowdown. So this poem is a little, hopefully a little transformation on that kind of thing. It's called Barely There. 27 Februarys ago, with a 12-pack of beer, I hiked all the way to the top of East Ord Mountain with three guys I knew from the summer fire crew. There was Kevin, who made almost a million dollars growing marijuana in a hydroponic greenhouse. There was Tom, my boyfriend, strictly vegetarian, who liked to take apart and rebuild Volkswagens. There, there was Vinny, Sioux Indian, often mistaken for Italian, the future father of my daughter. 
All day we were in the harsh desert sun and wind, from valley floor to 6,000-foot rocky peak. We hiked and took turns firing Vinny's military-issue AK-47 assault rifle, breaking beer bottles, knocking the tips from jagged rock tops as far as a mile away. I won't lie, it was fun. And near the mountain top, we found a charred pair of bighorn sheep horns resting near a cave, and they looked centuries old. Probably burned from some fire that swept through here, we said. Some sheep died up here. Years later, a Chomwevi Indian elder tells me, those horns were left there as an offering by a shaman. He wept for us all. He touched the stars. Um, I'm really big on this thing called the ghost dance. Are any of you familiar with that? It was a messianic movement in the 1860s um, throughout the Americas, or I'm sorry, throughout the U.S., with um, a lot of Native people being kind of killed off. And um, since my daughter's father and family have a lot of connections to the Sitting Bull and assassination, that's actually some of her extended family, I've been, become very involved in learning about the ghost dance. So this poem is called Ghost Dance from the New Messiah, Jacquavoca, Southern Paiute who said he had a vision of the old world, old world reborn again, 1909. I am spirit. You must make a dance to continue for five days. I am wind. My heart is full of gladness for the gifts you have brought me. I am mountain. When you get home, I shall give you good cloud. I am rain. I give you a good spirit and give you all good paint. I am sky. You must not fight. Do right always. I am lake. Do not tell the white people about this. I am star. The dead are still alive again. I am awake. Do not refuse to work for the whites and do not make any trouble with them. I am unborn. When the earth shakes at the coming of the new world, do not be afraid. You will receive good words from me. I survive. The water will return. The people will be whole again. Dance until my return. There will be love. And I'm going to read... It's just the first chapter from the fire memoir. Is that okay? Okay. Area 51, Nevada, June 1987. I'm on top of a mountain somewhere in Nevada, but other than that, I have no idea where I am. Just that I'm in the vicinity of Area 51, home to top-secret U.S. military art activities, and some say inexplicable alien sightings and extraterrestrial activities. I'm the only woman on a crew of 12 based out of the BLM Apple Valley Fire Station in the Mojave Desert. But there are only six of us up here tonight. We were flown in from tiny Caliente, Nevada, 100 miles northeast of Las Vegas, hours ago, as dusk was settling across the sky, on the 212 helicopter used for our initial attack flight crew. We are a designated first responder crew throughout the desert southwest, on call 24-7 for when desert wildfires break out. I have no idea what time it is, just that I'm shivering so hard, lying here on the rocky ground next to the rough fire line. I cut earlier this evening with the guys that I've woken up. I can hear a few of the others snoring, and it seems as if I'm the only one who's awake. This is one of my very first assignments as a firefighter. 
Lightning is the cause of this blaze, and we've managed to keep it down to burning less than an acre by cutting down pinyon pine trees and clearing juniper bushes away with chainsaws and pulaskis. The pulaski is a specialized two-headed steel tool with an axe on one side and a grubbing instrument on the other, designed specifically for fighting wildland fires in terrain such as this. On the 30-minute flight here from Caliente, I looked down at the ground rushing beneath us so that I could avoid getting airsick. And so I convinced myself that we weren't heading too far out into the middle of nowhere. I saw no roads, no houses, no sign of human life across the parched and moonlike desert landscape below. Several times, our crew boss, Mark Buster Hennessy, shouted through the flight helmet and deafening noise of the helicopter that the fire we were going to was in Area 51. By all appearances, it certainly appeared that we were, had dropped off the edge of civilization and entered a surreal sort of twilight zone, a sensation made all the more unsettling by how very dark it is out here now, how very quiet and still and lonely. I look up half asleep, feeling stoned and dazed. Glass-cut stars beam down at me. There's no light at all, except for a very faint smudge of light on the faraway horizon, which I see faintly on the horizon. I realize it must be Las Vegas, and wish I were there instead. Tucked into a hotel room, or playing roulette, sipping beer with my boyfriend, Zach. And I remember Zach's voice, thick with sarcasm, taunting me as I left the house a few days ago to work at the fire station, which isn't far from our adobe desert cabin where we live together. You think you're such hot shit on a hotshot crew, don't you? I see his face now, twisted in a smirk, hovering above me. You're only doing it because you want to fuck all the guys on the crew, aren't you? I blink hard, willing his angry voice and the image of his twisted face away, but it's hard to erase. So I sit up, teeth chattering, pull the Velcro tabs at the wrist of my yellow fire resistance, Nomex shirt as tight as I can, then fold my arms close to my chest and lean forward, trying to pull myself into a little ball to gather warmth into myself. I have no idea what time it is, because I don't have a watch. This is many years before cell phones are here are around, and it's doubtful I'd be able to get reception anyway in this extremely remote place. I'm scared. I wish I had a blanket, but out here that's a ridiculous thought. Each of us has only what we can carry on our backs, including as much water as we can clip onto our belts in one-quart plastic bottles issued by the BLM, a headlamp that fastens onto our plastic yellow hard hats, and of course our tools, which weigh a considerable amount. I'm using my mandatory fire shelter, folded and bundled into a pack the size of two boxes of brown sugar, our only defense against a fire blow-up and to be used only in emergencies at the direction of our crew boss as a sort of pillow. I'm thinking of unpacking the fire shelter, also known as a shake-and-bake for obvious reasons, to wrap myself in to get warm, but I'm too well-behaved to do that. We've been told that opening a fire shelter without permission is actually grounds for a felony charge. I'm cold, but I'm too scared to defy authority. And that's it. That's the very opening. So thank you.
Thank you, Ruth. That was wonderful. Can't wait for your memoir to come out. You will have to let us all know. Um, next, we have Nicole Olwian. Uh, she is a second-year poet in our MFA program, originally from Michigan, um, where many of the people and places that inspire her work still remain. Her work has appeared in Menacing Hedge and Bird's Thumb. So without further ado, Nicole. Hi. Um, we have so much time today that I'm going to do something that I've never done before, and I'm going to read from a story, um, just a short bit, and then I have a couple poems, too. So the story, um, it's probably a little bit necessary to know that it does go in reverse chronology, um, and each section begins with a date, so I'll be sure to read those for you. Um, and it does follow a woman who lost her son um, when he was young, and it sort of traces back from her finding relief and happiness with that all the way back to his death. So this is the beginning. How to accept the lunar landing. 20th of July, 1977. Sit on the back porch of the house you are viewing with Roger. He is inside with the realtor, the two of them dancing, the buyer-seller waltz, one, two, three, one, two, three, never coming out even. Gaze at the oak trees growing, lined and thick like soldiers, on the edges of the property, your first sign that this is the right one. Consider Roger, long legs ahead of you on forested trails, rough hands upon your shoulder blades in the morning, and feel the muscles in your mouth tighten with happiness. Feel the sun flicker with a passing cloud, brief cool shadow into a bath of butter light. Lower your eyes to the ground and remember a silence like outer space, blood in the grass and a flap of cardboard moving back and forth in the breeze. Pull the toy space shuttle from the inside pocket of your purse and examine it. Consider Alex. Consider your child turning to dust beneath the ground, a voice the earth hasn't heard in eight years. Notice the first falling pebbles of the rock slide in your chest, the one that tumbles through the airways, boulders bouncing off of ribs down into the stomach, where the pile will sit until you, bruised, can build it back into the mountain. Consider leaving. Consider running to a place where you can be alone with your grief, loyal to your past. Think of a way you could explain a change of heart to Roger. Think of how he'd take it. Think of the guilt you'd save yourself by leaving. Decide you'll explain everything after you've left, after you're out of range. Stand, mouth dry, not knowing in which direction you should move, and hear the sliding door open. Roger steps over the threshold, walking toward you and holding a stapled stack of papers. He gives them a quick shake. Welcome home, he says, grinning. He reaches up, as he often does, to flatten his hair, and something about the way he smacks at this particular curl makes you think of Alex, the way he would smack at his forehead when he messed up his drawings. Feel your reluctance fade a little and return Roger's kiss, sliding the toy shuttle back into your bag. 26th of January, 1976. Buy a pack of cigarettes from a pretty girl, blonde, Eyes like dark ponds in water, who stands behind the counter at the gas station. You notice a slight bulge in her thin frame, and you ask when she is due. When you walk back to your apartment, think about the animal of love, 
how you can make it grow with your nurturing, how it can grow so wide you can't see its edges, so wide it can eat you. If it doesn't eat you, it leaves you, and you stand in front of emptiness that once held a wide, dangerous mouth. Try to decide which seems worse to you now, the danger or the space. Wonder if you could do it again, if you could last a pregnancy and a child's lifetime, however long, without being afraid of it, afraid of yourself. It is not the last time you will wonder this. 2nd of August, 1975. Take up hiking. Buy a pair of boots and a tent from a dark-haired, beady-eyed man in an outdoor shop, Roger, and tell him you've never been backpacking before. Tell him you want to visit the Badlands. Tell him the Badlands are the most lunar place on Earth. How is that? He asks, casually swinging a clump of keys. Give him the first reason that comes to your head, the fact that a dead body would take thousands of years to decompose on the moon, that every drop of water would be sucked from the skin and the thirsty shell would be left staring into open space. Explain that a body in the Badlands would look the same. He laughs at the morbidity of your response, then asks you to dinner. Notice the way he listens to you, the way he glows. The largest crater in the solar system, the South Pole Aitken, is found on the moon. It is 1,550 miles in diameter, and the scientists believe it was created during the lunar cataclysm, a period during which the moon was violently bombarded by meteorites. The moon is one of the most heavily scarred orbiting objects in the solar system. 7th of April, 1975. Adopt a black Labrador with a white smudged chest from a local shelter. Name her Luna. The woman behind the counter shuffles papers like a doctor bringing bad news, then points a bony finger to three straight lines. She wears no ring. You sign in ink and watch her nails, little red beetles at the ends of birch twigs, flicking through the filing drawer. Lines carve their way into the outer tips of her eyes and along the smooth expanse of her forehead. The brownish residue of face powder and blush gumming in their edges. Her hair is thin and crisped by too many mornings in the hot breath of a hairdryer, and when she smiles, her brows arc downward and her eyes look like water in a basin. You've heard before that women with no children take up motherly jobs, and you wonder how many near-dead dogs she's had to soak in flea baths or pin down for eyelid ungluing. You wonder if she's ever delivered puppies, if she's ever played God with a death needle. You wonder who she blames. You want to ask, what's the worst you've ever seen? She pushes the drawer shut and hands you a yellow carbon copy. Push the door open and walk toward the car, tiny Luna tugging you along. And I think that's all I'll read from this one. So, thank you. My, my very first try. <laughs> and then I have a few short poems from the thesis work that I'm doing. Um... First is called, Peace be upon you, O people of the graves. Assalamu alaikum, ya al-Kabur. My ancestors, I haven't come to you for words. My tongue and your tongues have known different shapes for God, for amygdala. My body has less grace than one who knows her own soft history unabridged. Can you give me this, 
a string to hold. Can you hold this, this other end, so that it hangs not limp in the dirt? Surah al-Fatiha. In a dream, the earth split like a virus, and the two worlds eased apart. I stood one foot on each. But do the cedars on Mount Lebanon still wait for me, a woman blessed and splintered, amrika-stained lips and a bone or two made from the dust of the hills of Mashkara? Am I left the white of a capping wave, of foam spilling over the body that made me, but disappeared into me? Thee, do I ask thee for help? Tell me, what is the punishment for a lie told within a prayer? Jiddo, in a dream. Those who seek the straight path to themselves have not studied their own fingerprints. I know nothing of grace, but a a rogue wave is a place where merciful forces become something terrible enough to name. Our Lebanon. I came to myself in the dead of night, a desert refusing water, and the horse they swore had been broken pummeled the side of its enclosure. Here, horse, come to the fence. Tell me of the day we left you. I will tell of the day I recognized kinship in a bowl of olives. Give me everything you swallowed in the field. If you won't, still, our shadows follow us, long and leaning toward each other. Watch them. With the sun in front, we could be the same creature. The earthworms think how foolish we are to kill a man for what his father has done. Not knowing but being what was already there, I ate grape leaves in Detroit. The woman who brought the Heineken and whiskey round was bent, a scar in soft ivory above her eye. When they reached the southern branch of the river Alizia, she fell and put her mouth to the Lebanese sand. Sea pollen trace its love on the belly of a wasp. My father's country did not give her a name, or honey, or olives, or cedars for our children. Her voice, that sand, but under a soldier's boot. The nationless step through, and below the bones of my ancestors, then their ancestors, toward Mecca, and the worms, nine hearts beating, nine hearts forgiving. I have a little baby one that is a little lighter, called Kaleidoscope. Give me the morning's yellow river of hair, the fast contraction of your pupils. The way an iris holds history in pixels is the way you broke me open into light. Thank you. We have our next three readers. First, we have Andy Holt, um, who is a recent graduate just this past year of the MFA program. He was born and raised on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and as a result, his blood is mostly lemon-lime Gatorade. (laughs) He is currently working on a crime novel set in the wilds of suburban Florida. Andy Holt. Thank you. Okay, so um, 
Everybody knows Florida is popular with tourists and retirees and crazy people, but n not everyone knows that there are a lot of fugitives in Florida. I don't know if we have the most, but we have the best fugitives, I promise you. So uh, I brought this short chapter from this crime novel I'm writing, uh, and it stars a fugitive. Keeping his eyes full, that was the ticket. Occupying the senses, eyes full of the water, Nose full of salt mud, fingers busy rolling mangrove leaves into balls, and then reaching to grab another from the Ziploc in the passenger seat of his Jeep. Ears overcome with the wind flying down the highway to the convenience store. The swamps and pastures spread maddeningly into a straight horizon, like God had done the math just right. Too much time looking out over the flat green, and thoughts would start to creep into the gap. Traumatic visions of flame and blood and white-eyed animal confusion. Waking hours were best spent down in the swamp of things. At night, he dreamed about a long line of tanker trucks in four colors. Mornings, he woke up screaming. Leaving the trailer was only necessary in the morning to pick up supplies from Owl's Mart out near Yeehaw Junction. But entering the highway meant peeking his head clear of the bushes. The road was elevated above the swamp, and the open air had a dangerously cerebral quality. He preferred the mobile home park where he had lived for almost two weeks, the gathering of trailers near a fire circle ten miles off the highway. The six other residents all had leather faces. They were neurotic, but they learned stillness. Maybe he would too someday. Last night he was so anxious he grabbed a blanket and slept outside his trailer just for the calm it offered. The need to be alert out in the wild, being below the top of the food chain, they kept his mind squarely on his surroundings. Maybe one night a feral python would sneak up and consume him. That would be something close to justice, that or him burning to death. He tried his best not to think about it. Another mangrove leaf slipped from his hands into the wind, and he picked another from his Ziploc, tried to focus on the rough texture between his fingers. The rooftop of Owlsmart came into view. The glass front door was translucent with the remnants of old stickers advertising souvenirs for Yeehaw Junction, once a major tourist destination for tourists to buy knockoff tickets to Disney World. He tossed the last leaf onto the pavement and started picking salt from his beard, pulling at the thick hairs just enough for it to hurt. Outside the store, sorry, inside the store was split between the wall-to-wall -wall refrigerators of a convenience store on the left and on the right a gift shop of cheap Native American apparel and plastic imitation gemstones. Behind the counter, Julie lounged with her legs propped up on the countertop. Though a white girl, she kept her hair in two thin braids and wore one of the cheap Indian headbands. It had become clear over time that she did this on her own. Funny girl she was, and pretty. Big eyes, paper skin. He wondered where she lived. At the sound of the entry bell, she made a move to stand, but once she saw the greasy customer, she sagged back into her chair. Morning, Armand. Bless that girl for committing Armand to memory so quickly. He had missed the tactile pleasure of being called by his real name. Top of the swamp to you, Julie. We're out of black cherry jerky. No big deal, he said, though in fact it was. We've got jalapeno and mesquite. Each morning he bought a handful of black cherry pork jerky, a couple bananas, spring water, and a carton each of milk and orange juice. He had no refrigerator. Black cherry jerky had become the taste of his mouth. The routine was comforting, and in his experience, change could stir up all kinds of trouble. 
He could see himself taking a bite out of some other flavor and the door of his memory bursting open like an incinerator. When are you getting another shipment of black cherry? Let me check the manifest. Julie kept scrolling absentmindedly through her phone, eyes half-closed. Says we got a half-ton load on its way from Hong Kong. Got delayed by the worst nor'easter since the turn of the century. Just answer the question. God bless the souls of those poor crewmen. You don't have to be a smartass. May their valor carry them into Valhalla. To the sound of vaguely tribal percussion playing through the speakers, he gathered everything but the jerky, then spent a few excruciating minutes choosing between the green jalapeno bags and the red mesquite ones. Eventually the colors made him start thinking of the tanker trucks in his dreams, and that raised enough panic to grab a bag of each and hurry over to the register. He handed her a $50 bill. I'll take the change in internet minutes. Armin nodded to the dusty old desktop in the corner with the sign reading, $1 a minute. Every day with the internet, you should really get a smartphone. Those things are tracking devices is what they are. Then use the computers at the library. But then I wouldn't get to see your beautiful face. Ew, gross, Julie said, smiling a little. She probably couldn't tell from the greasy beard growing on his face, but they were around the same age. The register chirped. She nudged the plastic bags of groceries across the counter. Okay, 30 bucks changed since you went so easy on the jerky. She handed him the receipt. That's a half hour of worldwide rep. Worldwide web. Ready, go. At the push of the power button, the computer whirred to life and displayed the pixelated landscape of Windows 98. The old browser took 30 seconds to load Google and even longer to load the Bank of America website where he could check the page for his account. For the past two weeks, the transaction history showed $100 withdrawals at the Owls Mart ATM every other day, each with a $3.50 transaction fee, making for withdrawals of $103.50 and an otherwise spotless series of $50,000 depo- deposits on the first of each month, stretching back for one year, all of them from LSV LLC, all of them completely untouched. The same size payments extended a full 10 years before that, too, from excess holdings. The total balance in his, his bank account began with a five and stretched on for a while after that. He never let himself put the sum into words. Leaving the money abstract lessened the guilt, as did refusing to spend any of it, at least until this recent series of misfortunes. Next in his routine came the email. He navigated to the Shushmail homepage, which featured a hooded person with a single finger raised to its mouth and underneath a button reading, Log in to your discreet mail provider. His inbox featured a year of daily incoming messages and the sent folder, a year of daily outgoing, all of them identical. He typed bc at shushmail.com into the address bar, typed a single A into the subject line, and left the body of the email blank. He pushed send and was taken back to the inbox, with its long string of messages, all of them with a single letter B in the subject line. All their bodies were blank as well. No questions, no best wishes, no nonsense. Just as former employer Bud Christensen reviewing the manifest of a sinking ship, making sure he was still alive. The old man should have cut off contact completely, but Armin figured his emotions had beaten out his sense. He remembered the paternal way Bud used to talk to him, used to slap him on the back, the way he'd squint off into the distance during what he believed to be teachable moments. The poor guy had no children, and Armin had no father. There had been a desperate attempt at fatherhood from his mother's boyfriend growing up back in San Salvador. He even tried to play a game of catch with Armin one summer afternoon. 
The old beaten child's mitt barely contained the grown man's fingers, but it was the best he could find. The tattoos on his arms shined with sweat. That was the year his classmate, Otto Guzman, died in combat at 14. A dozen armed... A dozen armed teenagers watched from the back of his funeral, though it wasn't clear who they fought for. His casket stayed shut to save everyone the sight. The lid picked up a thin layer of red dust before the end of the graveside mass. Otto's mother went home with dust on the front of her polyester dress, which looked black somehow, but blinked purple in the sun. That was the year Armin's own mother got scared enough to send him away. Years later, that time would come to be called the Civil War. One night, a group of hard-looking men, men and women came to put him in the back of a truck with the other children, some of them crying, others wide-eyed with fear. Then came the late-night smuggling over the border, the teenage years picking strawberries in Plant City, Florida. When he was somewhere between 15 and 18, a sweaty German-sounding man showed up at the strawberry field and called him over. Your new name is Juan Ortega, the man told him, out of earshot from the white southern man that ran the farm. Juan Ortega as Sue Numbri. Do you understand? Armin checked behind him and nodded. None of the bosses knew he spoke English. Most of them seemed to think he was Mexican. The stern German man kicked the soil. From now on, Juan Ortega, you were born in Santa Fe. That is in New Mexico. Your birthday is April 5th in the year 1975. That means you are 30 years old. Tell me if I need to repeat myself. Armand wondered why Americans spoke so often of birthdays and wrote them on official pieces of paper in offices, but celebrated them so somberly. The man watched the other workers bend their spines into arthritic knots. He pointed, shielded his eyes from the sun. One day you'll thank me for picking you. From that day, Armand lived and worked at a hotel compound in Orlando. He would observe up high from room 554 overlooking the warehouses, logging shipments for nine years, up until the day he quit the day everything went to shit. His boss, Bud Christensen, taught him about America and money, told him parable-like stories about Walt Disney and Henry Ford. In the daytime, Armin counted the shipping trucks by color, green and red and blue ones into the distribution center, white ones into the warehouse out in the pasture with the smoking chimney stabbing the blue sky. At night, there were sometimes women. That German man, Schumacher, turned out to be probably the coldest man he'd ever known. Not friendly, not someone to thank for, any, for anything. But everything else he told him on his first day turned out to be true. And ten years later, Armin wished he had listened. Collect your money. Don't get curious. Ignore the smoking chimney. Remember that you are Juan Ortega. Avoid the police. Remember the numbers of your birthday. The police think Juan Ortega is dead. You do not want to see inside the warehouse. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. If you don't mind, I'm going to borrow that line, top of the swamp, to you from now on. That is how I will greet everyone in our drought-ridden state. Um, Next, we have Deb Durham. Deb immigrated from California from the untamed cornfields of southern Indiana for the sole purpose of writing nonfiction creatively noble purpose. Her abiding obsessions include teen romance novels of the 1950s and her chihuahua, Rock Hudson. Deb. (laughs) Hey. Okay. Okay. Is that good? 
step. Um, so on the way here, I don't know if anybody else saw this, but I saw a sign for a haunted hayride. Did anybody else see this? Was it just me? You seriously almost lost me. A haunted hayride in Los Angeles. Give me a break. I want to go. And then there's a carnival down the street. What I'm saying is, I know you had choices. I appreciate your being here. Um, so this piece, it's called Tipping Point, and it's actually in the um, summer issue of the Los Angeles Review of Books quarterly journal, which is the brainchild of the fabulous Tom Lutz, who is a professor in the MFA program. All right, here we go. The sound is relentless. Like a buoy bell at sea, pulling me through the comfortable torpor of pouring rain, churning waves, and night sky. I would prefer to stay there, floating without responsibility. But the sound yanks me out of sleep and back into my body. My right hip feels as though a railroad spike has been driven through it. I sit up, rubbing my eyes, trying to focus. It is my grandfather's voice that has dragged me into consciousness. Debbie, I think she's dead. Is she dead? I think she's dead. The hospital blanket falls around my ankles and nearly trips me as I stand. I stumble over to the bed where my grandmother lies, mouth open, eyes closed. Her face looks like candle wax just before it begins to melt. And I say the first thing that pops into my sleep-deprived head. Oh my God, she is so dead. It's around 5 a.m. My grandmother, at the end of a year-long battle with lung cancer, has been in this room for almost two weeks. A month earlier, she'd been told that she was cancer-free but a persistent ache took her back to the doctors and the news that she had very little time. She's in the hospice wing of the hospital where I was born. I am the only member of this family, immediate or extended, who lives outside Bloomington, Indiana, a university town where my family settled seven generations ago. My family is holy town, Their only relation to gown is through employment as security guards and janitors. My father had called me in Chicago, my home for the last 12 years. When I heard his voice on the phone, I felt a vapory tendril of fear like fog under my ribcage. Your grandma's in the hospital, he said. And this was alarming. It's not only that my father hardly ever calls. My grandmother has always been a firm believer in not bothering others with her health problems. Usually I don't hear about any illness until months after the fact. Should I come down? If you want to. Does grandma want me to? Yes. I wanted to yell at my father for being a dumbass, but I didn't know him well enough to get that personal. Instead, I called Southwest and booked my flight. The next day, I walked into the hospital room full of relatives, and somebody said, Here she is, Norma. As the first grandchild and the only girl out of six, I have always been the clear favorite. 
I'm so happy you're here, she told me, tiredly squeezing my hand. Grandma, where else would I be? She seemed to be doing well and enjoying her company, but my grandfather looked exhausted, and his sister Sue whispered to me that he hadn't eaten or been home in two days. When my grandmother drifted off to sleep, I told my granddad that I was starving and asked him if he would buy me lunch in the cafeteria. He was glad to have a person who needed something he could give. We ate meatloaf and mashed potatoes and red jello. I've always found hospital cafeterias comforting. It's a place to forget for a while. And the food tasted good. After lunch, my grandfather took me back to the house to rest and fell asleep himself while I was napping. It was evening when we got back to the hospital to find my father alone, sitting in a chair on one side of the bed and watching my grandmother breathe. He left soon after we arrived, and thus began the pattern of our days. We sat with her in shifts. I was on night duty, keeping vigil with my grandfather. My Aunt Gloria came to relieve us around 7 every morning. My father took the early evenings, and my Uncle Mike and other family members, my great-aunts Mary and LaDonna, and any one of their children, Tariva or Tim or Kenny Lee, came on weekends and whenever they could. I developed an insatiable hunger for the thick, cinnamon-battered French toast in the cafeteria where my grandfather and I stopped every morning on the way home. Nothing in a hospital room is soft. It's all sharp angles and hard, washable surfaces. Everything must be easy to sterilize against possible infection. Rubber tubing, molded plastic, vinyl and chrome, tile-covered concrete. Illness requires sanitary conditions, even the terminal kind. My grandmother's deterioration began almost immediately after my arrival. Despite knowing the end of the story, it was shocking to witness. Lucidity abruptly departed as her morphine dosage climbed. I watched her play a game of euchre with imaginary friends and fought to stifle teary giggles. The skin behind her ears was raw from the elastic strap on her oxygen mask, and my grandfather made padding from layers of Kleenex. Her lips were peeling from the oxygen that she couldn't be without. My heartache was a physical pain that radiated to my fingertips. They throbbed in rhythm with my pulse. Cooler air made it easier for my grandmother to breathe, and the room grew so cold that I took to wearing one of her old lady cardigans and stealing blankets off the hospital supply cart to stay warm during the night. Half of the room was in cave-like darkness. In the other half, fluorescent lighting abraded the eyes. The plastic arm of the chair that I dozed in tortured my back, but it was the most comfortable seat in the room. The chill, the lack of sleep, and the burning in my stomach from bad hospital coffee gave nights the clarity, the charged clarity of an acid trip. And I knew what that was. (laughs) My grandfather seemed unaware of the increasingly frigid temperature in the room or what that implied. 
For 30 minutes at a time, he knelt on the tiled concrete, massaging warmth into his wife's hands and feet. I wanted to help him, to take my turn, but it seemed such an intimate turf war, this battle between my grandfather and death. My very presence felt like a violation. Their 60th wedding anniversary was just weeks away. My grandparents met in 1943 when they were 16 and 18 at Cascades Park, a half mile from where they live now, then. I asked them once what first attracted them to each other. My grandfather said it was the fact that my grandmother was the youngest in her family and had no brothers and sisters to mind like the last girl he went with. (laughs) My grandmother said it was because he made her laugh. In pictures, they are a rosy-cheeked and pompadoured cliché. They are breathtaking. The only time they were ever apart was when he was in the Air Force during World War II. He told me the story of how he went AWOL and hitchhiked from New York City to Indiana with $5 in his pocket so that he could see her and their two babies before he shipped out to Portugal. She told me that she had a dream once that he'd come home. And the dream was so vivid, she jumped out of bed and opened the door to find only moonlight and an empty gravel road. They shared the loss of a child, Ricky, the baby of the family. He was accidentally shot by a careless neighbor when he was four. My grandfather once said that when he was told the news, he heard something like music in his head, and then he never went to church again. Watching my grandmother's body literally withdraw from life, listening to her rattling breath and her drug-induced ramblings, I learned that there is a tipping point for life itself. At some juncture, the body can't come back. It must go forward into death. It was in this cold, hard room that I learned the guilty tedium of waiting for a person to die. I run for a nurse so that someone official is in the room. There's nothing she can do except confirm for my grandfather that there's nothing she can do. He needs this. And even so, he continues to stand there looking at his wife as if he can't quite understand what has happened. I telephone my father to tell him that his mother is dead. And I make sure that my aunt and uncle are on the way. Back in the room, I tell my grandfather that his children are coming. He seems to wake up a bit and says something about letting the rest of the family know. After all of the waiting, there is business to attend to, and it's time for me to head back to the house and start making calls. I've never been an integral part of my father's family. My parents divorced when I was five, and my mother, a devout Jehovah's Witness, limited my contact with, his, with my father's relations. She's never approved of their tavern-going, profanity-loving, thoroughly secular ways. I like them myself. <laughs> As an adult, I managed to become close to my grandparents, 
and closer to them actually than to my father. But I only know the rest of my family by name. I reveal few details of my life to them. I don't want to take the chance. My world is theater, Sunday brunch, and fair trade coffee. Theirs is deer hunting, fishing, and fried anything. It's not that I see my own ways as superior. It's just that I am protective of my choices. I don't care to view my thespian friends, my artist friends, my queer friends, and my own burgeoning queerness through their lens. But when my grandmother went into the hospital for her last day, I was the only person who could coax my grandfather from her side to eat and sleep. Family members came to me to consult about what he might need, and now I am the I am stepping into the role of even greater responsibility. It's up to me to begin to arrange for the rites and rituals surrounding the celebration and mourning of my grandmother's life and death. It is May, but I had forgotten about spring in that icy room. Walking out of the hospital and down the zigzagging flights to the parking lot at the bottom of the hill, I step out of shadow and into lemony sunlight. It is a perfect spring morning of a sort particular to southern Indiana. The sky is watercolor cerulean. Yeah, I said it. It's dappled with cottony wisps of clouds, and there's a breeze, soft but solid, against my skin. It's like a rose petal massage, cool and velvety, rubbing life back into my arms and face. Crossing the lot, I breathe deeply, my head filled with the perfumes of lilac and dogwood. I drive back to the house with the windows down, flowering trees and bushes line the street, more lilac and dogwood, redbud, forsythia, and crabapple. They frame the restored Sears and Roebuck bungalows and absorb the traffic sounds from the town square three blocks away. I cruise through this flowery hush, stopping at the local food co-op to buy a coffee, fair trade, and an apricot scone. Holding these tokens of my life as I live it in Chicago restores me a little. This little greenhouse. My grandparents lived here together for the entire 60 years of their marriage. My grandfather grew up in the little blue house next door, and my family has owned this land since 1929. I remember the apple orchard that used to abut the property. I remember the Friday evenings I spent here as a child from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. in the evening exactly. That was the extent of my father's visitation rights, watching television and celebrating the holidays that were forbidden in my mother's home. I remember all the visits from Chicago, sitting at the kitchen table with grandma and granddad, eating homemade pie, and listening to stories of their hard scrabble life. My grandmother was the master pie baker in our family, and my grandfather was the master and legendary pie eater. During the last year, she used her good days to make pie crusts. There were stacks of them stored in the freezer downstairs. I sit with my coffee on the prickly lawn, and I remember. 
I stare down the hill behind my grandparents' house at the remnants of the concrete picnic table grown over now with blackberry bushes, and I remember. I see the buckle in the earth halfway to the bottom that threw me off my tricycle when I was three. I rub the scar that is still visible, and I remember. Picking myself up off the grass, I go inside and grab the cordless phone, my grandmother's address book, and a glass of iced tea. I settle myself on the back porch where the sun beats hot and alive on my head and shoulders. The birds sing their particular songs of birdie seduction. One of the squirrels my grandparents have taught to come to the door for peanuts and grapes starts tentatively up the back steps. I click my tongue and toss him the rest of my scone. I will miss my grandmother. I will miss the way she loved me as though I were still a child. Holding the book open in my lap, squinting to read her spidery hand, I take a deep breath and start dialing. Without her, I am older. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. That was the first time I've ever heard any of Deb's work, and now I'm hooked, and I know about you all. Um, our last reader is Alex Ratanapratu. Uh, he is a Thai American poet from Orange County, California. He received his BAs from CSULB in English Literature and Creative Writing and is in his second year at UCR. He has been a workshop leader for Cambodia's first literary journal, New Hotch in Phnom Penh, and his poems have been published in Rip Rap, New Hotch, and the Amer Asian American Literary Review. Alex. Hey, uh, so... Thank you for hosting it. Thank you to Skylight for hosting this reading. Um, and thank you for everyone who showed up and braved having a car breakdown. Uh, I'm happy to see all of you made it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read some poems. Uh, some of them are newish and some have been published. Uh, some of them will be read twice because they're written in a way that is meant for them to be read in a couple different ways. And so I'm going to demonstrate that. And I'd like to begin with one uh, short one in memoriam to a friend whose memorial is today. To John. I folded you in halves, in halves. If one thing you taught me was to love the figuration and paradox, then I will always have you in limitations, even if it's the ink left of your name on some paper from some trash. Ghost watching. As much as the air can provide breath, I will have worry. Worry for my father who cannot go home, who has no one to return to. We have given up our name, our choice of holiness and wholeness, the caretaker of a star snuffed by the index and thumb of a man in a gold uniform who rests in my father's closet. I am his son as much as the chill that scatters birds with my name, not the name of my father or his father, but the one hidden by the gift of a king. The sounds of my grandfather's pen scratching out trade lines in the Philippines, or clippers along my father's skull, and the drape of orange robes crossing his thin chest. But when seeing these sounds in prayer, it is like scouring a book with no index, 
the frantic hands of my memory, guided by nothing but the smell of aged skin against my cheek. For my father, I have been his son as much as I have not. And as much as I have been a child, I have not acted as the one who would rather play than study these patterns of love, where a gift is as much debt as pleasure. For my grandfather, a man I have never known, who took his mother's name, then his father's, and now a man whose name escapes his own son's memory. We are in the folds of a glass lotus, whose petals spiral out and in while it grows and shatters. The Chankiri Tree If I could sense again, I would want to know the gentle prick of tacks that hold silks to my waist, and woven bracelets of hair and plumed thistles. My roots, wishbones cracked, webs of speckled cotton cover my fingers, children just four paces away, and I have had so much time. Elegies and Assimilation 1. Sounds of cartilage in between teeth and the drop of a chicken bone rings in the silence of his folded furniture clasped closed from eyesight. And his print shop, dust settles on his daughter's bowls and rabbit fur muffs sewn before she left to live with the sushi chef and never call back. Two. And we danced with hooks on our lips, reeling us up to dangle like marionettes varnished and drying. Three. In the 1970s, my father lived in England, received a business degree, and was bankrupt by empires. What I mean to say is that polyester did not burn, it melted into his skin. 4. In the old pool hall, the sound of a blade hacking is all that it took to make us scatter, not for fear of its landing, but where it could lead. Revision in a self-portrait, after Walter Benjamin. And with the flash comes moments of still where light refracts off the back of dust, careens outward, giving shape to constellations of memory. The three dimensions fracture at the edges like faces in cracked mirrors, the distortion that is both subject and object revealed along its edges. I am with my mother, learning to straighten my hair, widen my eyes with lines, and thin the dirt in my skin. And with the flash comes moments of still, I am with my mother, where light refracts off the back of dust, learning to straighten my hair, careens outward, giving shape to constellations, widen my eyes with lines of memory, the three dimensions fracture and thin the dirt in my skin, the distortion that is both subject and object revealed along its edges. CalWorks 100 I2 RCA, or CalWorks 100 I2 Refugee Cash Assistance Program, Time eligibility. If the victim does not apply the first month of being declared a victim, then assistance is limited by time lost. If a victim is not found a victim, then they are not citizen or refugee. Age for eight months so it becomes lean, wrap in kombu to seize the dark open of ocean and let the plastic pail steep in the flesh. Lines of fat grow thin, cut the belly, fillet the cheek, pry the eye out for presentation. Time eligibility. If the victim does not apply, age for eight months so it becomes lean, the first month of being declared a victim, wrap in kombu to seize the dark open of ocean, then assistance is limited by time lost, and let the plastic pail steep. If a victim is not found a victim in the flesh, then they are not citizen or refugee. Lines of fat grow thin, cut the belly, fillet the cheek, pry the eye out for presentation. So, yeah, this one is probably one of my more um, 
experimental pieces and it's kind of hard, you can't tell what I'm doing, but there's these academic endnotes and, and an annotated bibliography that go along with this poem and they're all meant to be sort of read at the same time and in different ways. Um, so I will read it one of those ways because I don't want this to last too long. <laughs> Nomos Trinitarium. 10,000 miles tip to tip. An American expansionist slogan depicted in a cartoon see below after the Spanish-American War where the U.S. decided it should continue settler colonization as, reg as a regular practice reaching from one end of the continent to the islands off both coasts, Office of the Historian, Freedom of the Sea, Homer's Heroes. The mountains never lost the old pious fear. The sea is a place of free trade and non-ownership, whereas land is a place of sovereignty and ownership. Schmidt 178. It is a heroic endeavor to breach the antiquated lands of the East. With every pop, trees fall to the ground and bivouacs squatting the terraces are felled, like sparrows before the shake, a collective scatter. If I read with my body, then each sound, vibrational exercise, eardrum, throat string, gut thump, in nomine patris et file et spiritus sancti, in the name of the Father and Holy Spirit, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, NIV, never indict valor, whether it be killing everyone over ten. Davenport. One after another. Nights are where I can still taste fish sauce and shrimp paste that hangs low against the wall by the freeway. Guan Yu stands guard behind a grocery store, and the old men with their karaoke mics sing like Paris by night, while sucking down coffee like water with cigarettes, tracing the arc of the distance between a back strained from carting boxes of frozen meat and produce, and a chest where they hold the breath of their sons and daughters. If we are the bodies that make up the sums of refugee, then each of us is premature and are severing from the cities in which we loved. These cities carve out a shape called motherland, and us, too young to remember her face and a willingness to forget. I want nothing more. I can still hear my brother saying he could feel insects on his skin and at his feet. His skin pulled like sheets from brown to pallid. My brother, the only child to remember home and know the difference between I want to leave and I've never belonged, with arms raised in the street wanting what would follow, and now nothing more than some files and etched marble. If the wind can capsize boats, why not curb metal for just a moment? Just a dream of hair or ivy can hold me down to taut muscles that once had hardened to strike me and soften them like our mother's skin while steaming roots with lemongrass. Yet, I lie still now as fiends make me dream the apothecary's swing, his cricket fingers playing the song. Mandible teeth reverberate, the abacus click, the metronome slowing, a forgetfulness. I want nothing more. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um, that is all we have for tonight. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you to Skylight for hosting us and being so wonderful. Um, always, always, always. Um, just a reminder, David Campos' book, Furious Dusk, is um, at the front for purchase. Um, and I do not want to say any more um, in hopes that what you've heard tonight will linger in your mind. Have a good night. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.